Hi everyone and welcome back to our speaker series. Uh, today we have with us uh, Ronan and Derek. So maybe Ronan and Derek, do you want to give us uh, a quick uh, introduction about yourselves? You yes, Ahmed. Uh, thank you for allowing us to speak today. Um, I'm My name is Ronan Murphy. I am the chief executive of Get Visibility. We are an AI software firm. Derek? Sure. Thanks, Ronan. My name is Derek. I'm the CTO here at Get Visibility, working on the technology behind the software and the AI. So uh, very, very excited to be on this. Thanks very much for the invite. Thank you, guys. Uh, just a reminder uh, to everyone that you can ask questions in the chat and we will get to them uh, once we're done our questions. So uh, to start off, Ronan, uh, I've noticed that you were the director at the Cork Chamber uh, a while back. Uh, do you mind uh, giving, giving us a quick overview of what, what you did during that time? Uh, what, 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 what does the Cork Chamber uh, do in general as well? Yeah. Um... Yeah, so over the last couple of years, I, I've held the position of chairman of IT at Cork. And also, um, at, uh, consecutively, I was a director of Cork Chamber of Commerce. So um, these uh, not-for-profit organizations, I think they're very important in terms of what I would say predominantly for is helping to build relationships um, with other business people in the region and in the area, um, and also to effectively... Um, uh, get um, representation at governmental level with issues uh, businesses might be facing, whether it's recruitment or taxes or uh, infrastructure. So, um, yeah, Cork Chamber and ITA Cork as well are two very dynamic, progressive organizations. Um, and uh, I think they do a great job for, for Cork and for the businesses and for the region. Brilliant. So uh, I guess just a follow on question about the chamber. What, what are the kind of supports that they provide for, for small and medium businesses? Do you... Yeah, I'm um, so in terms of Cork Chamber, it's a few years since uh, I've been on the on the board of Cork Chamber. But I mean, they, they do a lot from um, helping organizations in, in many different areas of marketing, um, um, business export documentation, um, they're a very good sounding board in terms of um, opportunities uh, that are uh, within different industry verticals in the city. And also, as I said, you know, very important for lobbying if there's, you know, obviously Cork has been a very unlucky recently with flooding and Connor Healy and the team there have been very um, strategic in lobbying of the government to try and get this flood relief scheme in place. Um, so, I mean, there's many, many different benefits you'll get from being a member of the of the, of the chamber, but also, uh, I guess, in addition, there's the there's various different awards. Um, uh, there's different uh, events. Obviously, they've been under pressure this year with COVID, but they're important in terms of strategic networking, um, building relationships, and then obviously getting business from the companies you get to know and you build rapport with. Thanks, Ronan. Uh, I guess this is a question that either of you could uh, input on. Um, so many, a, a question that I would say many businesses that are especially starting up or say someone who wants to start up a business who is young, I might ask, why would I choose Ireland? Why would I start here if I could go to the UK, if I could go to France, Germany, the US? Um, I'm sure there's many factors, but what is the selling point? Do you think it's a good idea to start from here, uh, from Galway, Dublin, or Cork. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll kick it off first and foremost, and then Derek is from South Africa, so he can give his opinion. But I think um, the greatest asset that we have in Ireland is people like yourself, Ahmed, and Sam. It's access to talent. I mean, um, the quality of the pipeline, the human pipeline that uh, both uh, UCC and CIT and other academic institutions provide a second to none anywhere in the world. And I feel like the um, the caliber of the students which come on stream um, have a very can-do attitude, which is evidenced by uh, this event that you guys are running this evening. There's a very entrepreneurial um, approach towards work. Um, and that is a fundamentally important ingredient in any business, whether you're a startup, 
or you're a mid-sized company or indeed a multinational. And it's it's one of the important reasons why you see so many multinationals locating in Ireland is the access to that talent. Um, apart from that, I would say that the quality of life in in Ireland is, again, it's second to none. It's a very, very high standard. We have our challenges. I mean, um, you guys as students will know that housing is a huge problem. It's too expensive and the quality is terrible. But um, I mean, in Cork, you're not spending three hours a day commuting. Typically, um, to commute to or from college is, is quick um, and it's relatively painless compared to some of the big metropolitan areas uh, in Europe or, or elsewhere. Um, you're you're always only you know 15 or 20 minutes from a beach, um, so I think the the quality of life, the the, the quality of the academic uh, um, institutions, and the quality of and pipeline of the people um, is incredibly important for any startup um, as well as multinationals. Um, that would mm. be my view, Derek. Do you want to contribute? Yeah, if, if I could maybe pick up on that, Ronan, that's a very good point. There's an appetite here in Ireland, especially in Cork as well for centers of excellence, which are clusters of companies or research institutions like yourselves that are deciding that we're going to actually push the boundaries out in a particular area, whether it's AI, whether it's cybersecurity, uh, whether it's um, medical, pharmaceutical, um, there's definitely an entrepreneurial spirit here which says, hey, let's see how good we can be. Let's set a standard globally for what we're doing in this area because there's nothing to hold us back. Um, we don't have uh, problems in terms of conservatism around technology. Um, we're sitting right on top of internet connections from Europe to the US. I mean, we're right on top of those. So there's well-connected, people have got the right attitude in terms of let's take this on, let's show how good we can actually be. And if you combine those with the factors Ronan mentioned, you get, you get an area where companies can excel so much that they actually set global standards. And that's starting to happen with cybersecurity AI right here in Corp, which is amazing. And that's what's attracting these big multinationals, which contributes to that impetus then as well. So it's a positive feedback loop. It's really exciting. Yeah, and I, I think just to um, amplify Derek's point, we recently started building um, real groundbreaking AI um, for the classification of the Arabic language, which is a really complex challenge because of the the applicability of natural language processing to Arabic. It's a, it's a complex language to classify. And we have been able to find the skills here in Cork, locally from a development standpoint, where we have developers who are um, from the Middle East, fluent in Arabic, building um, uh, aspects of our platform in Arabic to deal with the challenge of classification and AI in the Arabic language. So, I mean, that, that having a, access to that resource pool um, and that innovation capability is tremendously valuable, I would say. Yeah, great. Yeah, agreed. Great answer, guys. So I think this is last question and then we'll get into get into get visibility specifically. But I think uh, traditionally Ireland, certainly 10 years ago, has had a big problem with regional development. Do you think Ireland's come a long way in terms of developing the more regional cities like Cork and Galway? Uh, do you think there's still a, a long way to go? Um, I think there's still a long way to go. Um, so, I mean, if you take, for example, uh, the technology cluster, um, you have got a good tech cluster in Cork. And a lot of people would say, you know, do you have a tech cluster outside of Cork? Um, you could argue this point with me, but I would say there's not. I mean, if you go to Kerry, you could probably count on one hand the amount of um, technology companies which are established in Kerry. Um, probably similar in Waterford. Um, so, so I think you're probably finding that, that Dublin and um, Cork are probably further ahead in reality of what you're finding in other counties. Um, obviously then, I mean, if you compare Kerry from a tourism perspective, they are miles ahead of Cork, for example. So they're very strong in tourism. They wouldn't be so strong in terms of a cluster from a technology perspective. That may change now that you've got the kind of the partnership with uh, uh, CIT and um, Tralee Institute. Um, 
But my feeling would be that it's it, it isn't as advanced as it should be. And at Dublin, primarily, um, then Cork, then to a degree Galway, Limerick, maybe Waterford, from a technology perspective, are developing hubs and clusters. And in the rest of the country, I, 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 well, I feel, and look, I'm open to correction on this, I feel that they're a long way behind. Do you, do you have any perspective on that, Derek? No, it's, it's a, I agree. Um, it's, it's definitely something I've, I've seen over the last 10 years, or I've been here 20 years now, and I've seen how Cork has expanded significantly. But in comparison to the other regions, uh, it seems to be the strongest, as Ronan mentions, I think. And definitely there's, there's more scope. Um, Dublin has still got a, a, a much larger percentage of opportunities and jobs and uh, big multinationals. But you can see the movement. You can see the trends. A lot more of them are coming to Cork. And there's a lot more expansion in Cork. So it's growing faster. I don't have any figures. And I'd love to see them, actually. That might be very interesting. But I think Cork is growing faster. And it's it's like the second center for that. And so I, I kind of agree. But there's more there's more room to go. That's for sure. Brilliant. It'd be really exciting to see where that goes in the next few years. But um, I guess we'll we'll get straight into get visibility get visibility now. Do you want to talk a bit about talk a bit about about your business? Yeah. Um, so get visibility is a, a software firm. We were founded here in Cork, um, and we solve a very complex problem of helping organisations understand their unstructured data. So, um, you you've a couple of different types of data. You've got the database which is your structured data, and that's typically sitting in enterprise systems that organizations are very familiar with, such as SAP or Salesforce. Um, uh, but then outside of that, you've got unstructured data, and that typically makes up your uh, Word documents, Excel documents, PDF documents, pictures, uh, videos, JPEGs, and the list goes on and on and on. And uh, this data is presenting a significant risk to organizations because of their inability to understand what is happening to that data. How are their users um, accessing that data? How are they sharing that data? Where are they storing that data? And um, it presents risk at many levels. It presents um, potential leakage of intellectual property or competitive uh, pricing type documentation it provide it presents risk in terms of regulatory compliance such as gdpr or ccpa um, it presents risk with insider fraud it presents risk when organizations are hacked and they have to uh, generate a, a report on what happened and they don't know what was lost as a result of the fact that they didn't have visibility of that data so we built a platform that helps organizations to discover classify and protect their unstructured data, which is a huge problem, but it's a big challenge. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about it, Derek? Yeah. So, yeah, just just picture that uh, you're you're starting up a new company. You're an entrepreneur. You're you're you have to decide. Okay, where are we going to put our docs, our our Word docs, or our, do we go with Google Docs? Do we go with Microsoft? And you can decide. There's a lot of options now. There's cloud options and so on. You don't need to buy fancy laptops and store everything on a file server in the corner. You can actually use the cloud, and a lot of people are doing that. But companies that have been around for 10, 20, 30 years have been storing stuff on servers, in the corner, in the computer room, down the hall for years. And there's millions and millions of documents there, and they've lost track of them. So those documents could be patents. They could be custom information, medical information, you name it. And if that data leaks out, they're in big trouble. There's GDPR. There's hackers out there looking for this kind of thing all the time. So they've got to know where the stuff is and start protecting it more than ever. And they just don't know. And how do you look at 10 million files? Like You can't. You have to automate that. You have to run some kind of script. So our software gets its teeth into those documents, and it looks at them, it classifies them, it tells you where the important ones are, it tells you which ones need, need to be protected, which ones need to be deleted, where the duplicates are that you should have deleted already, and a ton of things that are useful for you practically immediately to say, okay, we need to clean this up. You can also migrate what's left onto the cloud and save money because you can sell those old servers. But knowing what to migrate is really valuable. And that's another thing we do with our software. So some immediate benefits to a company. 
That's super interesting. It's uh, it's an area that's being tackled that I haven't heard about before, really, to be honest, um, with unclassified data. Uh, and it's super nice to see it uh, being based in Cork as well, uh, outside Dublin. Uh, so I guess um, something that people mix up a lot is uh, data governance and data privacy and, again, data security. So these are all subtly different. I would say security is more to do with what you guys do around the hacking and stuff. But again, data privacy, I assume, is is key as well. So maybe do you want to distinguish between them? And um, so, so I, I I think Ahmed, in fact, data security, um, data privacy, um, I think they're all intrinsically linked. Um, they everything when it comes to data is about the visibility you have of data. Now, whether that that is to demonstrate that you're taking adequate controls around privacy of data. Um, you need to understand where that data is. If you want to protect data from a security perspective, well, that's very difficult to do if you can't demonstrate where it is and what type of controls are around it. If you want to demonstrate that you're compliant from a regulatory perspective, then again, you cannot do that unless you have visibility across the data. So when you talk about any of these requirements, governance, risk, or compliance, it's all about visibility and having visibility of that data will it, it will drive your privacy program it will drive your governance program it will drive your risk program and it will it will drive your compliance program so very interestingly our buyers in a large organization um this is both a blessing and a curse by the way it could be the infosec guys who want to secure the data it could be the governance guys who want to demonstrate that they have good uh, governance controls on the data. It could be the risk guys who want to mitigate um, what will happen in the event of something going wrong, or it could be the compliance guys. And often privacy falls under compliance. So what are we doing with data that contains personal identifiable information under GDPR? What are we doing with data that contains personal health information um, that falls under HIPAA? What are we doing with data that contains credit card details or financial information that falls under PCI? So it's all intrinsically linked. Um, you've got people, you've got process, you've got technology. But at the end of the day, when it comes to any of these initiatives that an organization want to implement, you cannot do that effectively if you do not understand the data. Mm. And the vast majority of organizations that we um, start working with from Singapore to Thailand, to South Africa, to Australia, to North America, to Switzerland, to Saudi Arabia, to Ireland, they are all wrestling with the challenge of we have a privacy mandate, we have a governance mandate, we have a compliance mandate, we have an infosec mandate. Um, but in order to effectively enable those mandates and to demonstrate um, we are compliant, we have to wrestle the big beast in the room. And the big beast is the 50 terabytes of unstructured information, which is sitting in the format of emails. Mm. Some of it is in Azure, some of it is in Dropbox, some of it is in SharePoint, some of it is in OneDrive, some of it is in AWS. It's everywhere and it's mm. enormous. And how do we manage to give oversight of that data? And that's where we come in. And once we discover it and classify it, we then enable many of those different um, challenges, which are, let's not call them challenges, let's call them um, overriding um, mandates which the organization want to address. Do you want to add to that, yeah. Derek? Yeah, uh, so it's it's all about transparency. So what's happening, there's a huge trend all over the world now for companies to be examined deeper and deeper. Every Every year there's a new regulation or there's new compliance there's new data privacy laws. Customers and staff are now entitled to have more insight into what's going on in a company. Like imagine like 50 years ago, you could have a filing cabinet full of data, full of documents. Nobody would know about that. Like nobody at all. There could be customer data, there could be patents, there could be letters, there could be anything in there. The only way you'd get access to that is an auditor coming in, 
or the police coming in and, and looking in the in the filing cabinet. But now everything's going digital. Everything is migrating to the cloud. And now suddenly the customers or suddenly a company needs to be aware that they are being scrutinized more than ever before. And it's and, and it's not just um, people that are interested, such as regulations, like, oh, you might have to be GDPR compliant. They are big fines now if you keep the wrong type of data electronically. If you've got to file a Word document that's got somebody's name in it, up until a few years ago, it was like, oh, you know, so what? But now you could actually be fined a huge amount, millions of dollars or euros, you could be fined because of a name in a Word document. Like as an IT person, that's a bit scary now suddenly, like, whoa, the whole game has changed. Everything has moved. All the goalposts have been moved by these privacy rights, and they're just getting more strict. So you really have to understand exactly where your data is. You've got to be so careful now. And it's not going to get easier and more lenient. It's going the other way. So it's going to become more granular. It's going to become more real time. And so you need a piece of technology or an approach that can keep up with this faster than human being pace that can learn and understand what's going on. So it's very exciting. It's it's almost science fiction that's happening here. We need to be able to track who's doing what, who's editing stuff, who's copying stuff, who's emailing stuff. But it's so complex and it's so fast. You can only do it with AI. And that's really where it's interesting for me. I, I give you a really good example, guys. If you click on my LinkedIn profile, I posted an article today about a breach in an organization in Spain called uh, Prestige Software. And effectively, these guys provide um, hotel booking systems. So they've been collecting uh, PII information, credit card information, payment details, reservation details for many of the world's leading um, travel agencies, including Expedia. And they decided to migrate 10 million files into Amazon, uh, but they never secured the S3 bucket. Now, all of that data has been leaked. So there's 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 hundreds of millions of users around the world who have payment information, who have reservation details back as far as 2013, who are inside in that breach. And the problem that this company have is they have no idea what data was taken because they didn't have a classified because it's just simply too big. It's too difficult to understand. So up until get visibility, organizations would have had to try to do that manually. We now do that using automation and using machine learning. And um, we would stop this type of problem happening. So um, that's, that's a really interesting article and it's well worth uh, checking out, um, if you go into my LinkedIn profile, you'll see it. it. It only became public in the last day or so. So I think you you kind of answered my next question through through that talk there. But I think, like obviously from what you're saying, regulation seems like it's a constantly evolving landscape. You know, around this around this issue, do you think is it is it is it possible for small businesses to keep up with with how regulations are changing? Do you think you know for people who who aren't really tech? Um, very techy, you know. Is it, is it possible for them to stay stay wide of the regulation changes and stay within the kind of goalposts, as you said, um, or do they need a tool like at visibility? Or do they need a, a dedicated person to make sure that they're on track and they're not accidentally or uh, you know making mistakes and, and becoming prone to to big security leaks? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and um, I, I I'll maybe give my my topments on it first, Derek, and then you can contribute, but. Um, I think for small companies, the challenge is getting really significant. Now, I'll give you a good example. In the US, if you're a supplier to the US Department of Defense, meaning you build some sort of technology for the Pentagon, then you have, um, up until July of this year, you if you were uh, handling uh, CUI data, which is, uh, that's the acronym for classified um, yeah. confidential information, is it? Uh, Classified yeah, confidential. Um, oh, sorry, confidential unclassified information. Yeah. Um, you would have to be in a position to demonstrate, or sorry, you, you would have to self-assess the security that you take on that data. And once you self-assessed your business, um, you were eligible to bid on tenders, which are about $100 billion a year that the Pentagon issue. And um, there's about 350,000 companies who self-assess to bid on those tenders for the US DOD, and they're in every corner of the globe. 
In July of this year, the US Department of Defense is issued a new regulatory mandate called CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity a Model. And effectively, what that means is that every single one of those 300,000 companies has to be able to demonstrate that they are now classifying all of the CUI, the confidential unclassified information. So controlled unclassified. Controlled yeah. unclassified. Controlled is the important Yeah, stuff, controlled yeah. unclassified information across their environment. And this could literally be a company of five or 10 users who cut grass at the Pentagon or a company of 150,000 users who build Tomahawk missiles and everybody in between. And there is no gray area here. They have to be able to demonstrate that they are compliant. And therefore, uh, we believe that uh, tools such as Get Visibility um, that use AI for this problem will become uh, mandatory for organizations of all sizes. Because if you use a tool that's leveraging automation, um, you can do it much faster, much more accurately, and much more effectively than trying to employ a full-time person to do it manually. So um, in answer to your question, Sam, I think um, small companies are gonna have to live with the more bureaucratic and complex environment that the world is moving in. And we are gonna to continue to see uh, macro mandates like GDPR and CCPA, but you're also gonna see industry vertical mandates across financial, healthcare, manufacturing, retail, and finance, which put top-down pressure on them as well. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is getting more difficult and more complex. And the more breaches you see, the more Amazon S3 buckets you see getting hacked are going to put more pressure on them to be able to demonstrate that um, compliance ability. Mm. So it's a problem that's only getting worse. Yeah. Um, just something I wanted to add, um, Sam. So actually, if you, you, you ask the question, do small companies, for example, need an expert in regulations and understand that they don't get into trouble? I think it's an opportunity. They, with the right tools, a company that specializes in understanding how all of this stuff evolves is actually an opportunity. So if you've got people that are, are reasonably uh, tech savvy, not, not IT people, but people that can understand the regulations, you could say, okay, given that, given some kind of automated tool that gathers information about all the regulations and the way they're evolving, can you keep track of that evolution of the regulations and sell that knowledge to other companies that are struggling with it. So if you've got the company that cuts grass, they're not going to want to become CMMC and GDPR experts, for example, but they'll buy that service because they have to. So there's an opportunity there. Now, the tools and the technology to actually keep you on top of the evolution is really where it gets interesting now. Is I don't think those tools exist yet today, and it's an opportunity for small companies to stop, to start up and to look at how can we build a platform that maybe looks at all these different regulations and keeps track of them, distills them down, and we can sell that as a service because you've got a captured audience. People are going to be desperate for that information. They don't want to become compliance experts. They'll rather buy it. So I've kind of flipped it on its head, but it's an opportunity for somebody that's savvy, I think. Thanks, uh, Derek. Uh, and we have a question there for in the chat, uh, Sam, if you want to pop it up from Ben. So he says, this sounds like a great idea, huge potential in healthcare. Um, so his question is, can users with little tech experience use your products? I think this is very related to what Derek was speaking about there. So is there anything you guys have to say about this? Yeah, so um, we've built Get Visibility um, there was a couple of specific verticals which we found really interesting, and healthcare is one of those verticals. Uh, healthcare touches very sensitive information. Um, it touches relatively complex information, whether it is um, uh, x-rays or it's uh, medical documents. Um, but the one thing it has in common is that it is, um, it's very heavily regulated, especially in the US with HIPAA. But also, additionally, in Europe, you have PHI and you have other regulatory mandates that traverse hospitals and, and various different uh, institutions. Uh, one of our clients is the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, so, uh, Ben, 
healthcare um, is a huge area of growth that we anticipate um, that we will see over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. And the platform has been built from the ground up so that um, the users um, can be very light touch in what they have to have from a technical experience perspective. So when they take it visibility, they're taking an enterprise grade platform um, which leverages machine learning to classify data. And what they need to do in order to fine tune the models and drive a more granular level of visibility is very, very easy, very, very straightforward. If I can just pick up on that, um, what our software actually does is if you're sitting working on a document, you get a pop-up which tells you which regulations that document is relevant to. Like you might have no clue. You might have dumped a whole bunch of stuff in or opened an old document from 10 years ago and this pop-up appears on your desktop to say, this is a GDPR document and this has got to, it's got something to do with health information or something like that. And you might not have a clue. You might have opened it or created it or just opened it for the first time and you've got no idea. It's 60 pages long. You're on a page student and say, oh, geez, look, this has got health information. Our software tells you. It's right there in front of you. And you can say, oh, my goodness, this document needs to be protected, needs to be encrypted. It can't be copied. It can't be emailed. But it, you, you, you don't need to know that. It actually tells you because we realize that that's the difficult challenge is as these regulations get more complex and you've got to look for more things in documents and emails, the more automation we can give to the people, the, the less mistakes they'll make, the less mistakes they make, the less breaches and the less trouble the company gets into. So it really, really provides a, lot, a huge return on investment. So we have a, a similar question here from Eva. And Eva asks, uh, what systems and software do you class do you use to classify different types of data? So I suppose is is all your software proprietary? Yeah, uh, shall I take yeah. that one? Yeah. So we've built everything. Uh, the system is built entirely on top of uh, some uh, uh, open standards like uh, Java, the Java language, for example. Um, and we've built our own machine learning models based on top of the uh, the software. So it's all proprietary, um, and it's based on, uh, like I mentioned, uh, uh, actually the Java virtual machine. Uh, we're using three or four different types of language. And the actual machine learning part is uh, custom built. We've got an entire uh, pipeline of machine learning software that we have built ourselves. Come on, it's UCC, get a bit more technical, Derek. Okay, it's, it's, so it's Python and there's Python code running uh, with TensorFlow. Uh, you've got word embeddings. And the word embeddings are the ones that pull the extract information out of the document. And then you use, we're using TensorFlow with uh, deep neural networks to actually tell you what's in the document, whether we found health information or whether we found somebody's name or whether we found some controlled military term for Ronan's example of the DOD contractors. So that's like a human being looking at this and going, whoa, this document has got this and this and this and this property to it. You need to protect it and it's got to be archived and encrypted and so on. So the machine learning derives information from the actual text using those NLP tools. So I guess, I, sorry, go on. Sorry, Sam, yeah, I just have a follow-up question myself there after Ava's question. How did you train the models? What data did you use? Can I That's ask? That's a brilliant question. I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, kick off my answer first, and then um, uh, I'm going to ask Derek to maybe drill down a little bit more into it but when we started with the get visibility um journey we had a vision of a world where ai would make all of the determinations in terms of the classification of the data so we would train the model we would we would find data wherever we could and we would train the model and we would get it to a level of sophistication and then we would provide a mechanism where it became uh, easier to update the model based on specific information within an organization. But what, da what dawned on us very quickly was that uh, organizations are not ready to grasp the nettle in terms of full AI classification of unstructured data. And we pivoted early on in the COVID, um, the outbreak of COVID, to build an agent uh, that's get visibility synergy which is an endpoint agent and that what that allows is it allows organizations users who are working from home 
when they send an email or they create a document to classify it in real time as they're working on that document. And we've created a feedback loop so that if you're working in a specific department, let's assume you're working for Jared Cully in the IT department in UCC and you're working on a specific type of document, if you classify that document as the user, you're actually sending that classification back to the machine learning model sitting on a VM within the UCC environment. And that's very powerful for two reasons. It's a stakeholder within UCC who's got privileged access um, to start training the model to provide um, their perspective on what that data should be within a, a specific department within UCC. And you could apply the same to Leia Healthcare or to FBD Insurance or to any other organization. And then what we provide is the ability to quality check that at scale. So we're now approaching the unstructured data classification from a three-tier approach. We're allowing users to classify data and train the model. Um, we're uh, putting a safety net in place to quality check that at scale to make sure they're doing it correctly. We're also training the machine learning on the data lake, which the organization has, and we're quality checking that at scale. And then finally, we have uh, AI co uh, consultants going in and taking subsets of data um, and training models um, here in our, our own data center and providing those updates to the client. And that three-tiered approach is the most effective way for an organization to get to a, a, a position of having a very healthy unstructured data state. So it's, it's automation, it's context and content, and it's people. Mm -hmm. And that they're the three pillars which we've implemented in terms of a closed loop strategy to attacking this problem. Because there's many different there's many different challenges which you face. For example, if you're an organization, um, uh, uh, you may have people in your finance department that consider a specific Excel document to be a specific type of information. And then you may have somebody in your, your, your HR department that consider a similar type document to be something else. And you run into the problem at an enterprise level where the organization may want two types of classification for a very similar type document. And that's the capability we've built in this platform. Anything to add there, Derek? Yeah, that's a good point, Ron, in the three areas. Um, but just an interesting uh, point or uh, anecdote for the, the people that are watching this is we built a master gold standard model of documents to train the initial models, the, the neural network models. And those documents are standard working documents you'd find inside any organization. It's spreadsheets and it's PDF documents and it's letters and it's standard stuff. Because when we went and looked on the internet and we, for example, you go to the Wiki, Wikipedia, that Wikipedia information is not that useful because it's specially linked, hyperlinked information with keywords highlighted. That's not how somebody types a Word document. A Word document is a basic Word document. There's like, you know, the structure of it. Wikipedia does not train your neural network to find Word documents. You need Word documents and you need real Word documents because you can't generate them. Automatically generated Word documents will teach a neural network to look for automatically generated Word documents and it won't find anything. So we, we really learned some tough lessons in the beginning to say, okay, we need real data here, real documents. So this is where we came upon this idea of training a machine learning model that's got a damn good idea of basic business documents, but put it into the organization and then build this feedback loop in so that people that are experts in that organization are retraining the model on the fly without even knowing it. And it's not only are they improving the accuracy, but they're also teaching at that particular company's specifics. So whereas we learn HR documents and legal documents and finance documents, they might have um, Tomahawk missile design documents, which we haven't trained anything on, but the system will learn it. And I think that's a crucial takeaway is using machine learning, you can learn and adapt to what you find in the field. It's the only way to do it. If you try and pre-build or can knowledge in one organization, it'll never really transfer properly to the, another organization. So rather make it learn on the fly. And this is starting to get into self-learning AI. And that's basically what we've built. That sounds very fancy, but effectively it's expanding its knowledge set of what's in the organization. 
And that, I think, is the best way to build future software, is let it learn and learn from the environment that it's dropped into. So it's, it's starting to sound very organic, and I think that's the way it's going with AI. So it's really interesting. So I think like, this is maybe a, a tough question to ask, but how, when you're creating new iterations in your models, whether they're computer vision or NLP, and you're constantly adding new data, how are you? How do you objectively measure that your new iteration of the model is an improvement over the last one? Is that possible to do? Yes. You need a gold standard. You need a benchmark of data that you can go back and check against. So um, that's our standard model, which is the HR and all of those other the um, categories that we know about. We will always take a model and uh, um, and classify and see that we're not degrading our accuracy based on a known set of data. But if somebody, actually, that's a really good question, and I'm probably not going to answer it now, because if a company trains our machine learning model to learn an entirely new set of data that we've never seen before, because, by the way, we can pick up any feature. It doesn't have to be a specific, like GDPR, for example. Imagine it can be something as fuzzy and as complex as people talking about money laundering or talking about some really difficult abstract concept if you give it enough examples of that we can learn that feature even though it's really really diffuse across the different documents now that's a tough one to measure like if we're starting to pick out anti-money law or man money laundering discussions between two different offices like um, say you have an office in i don't know south korea or I don't know, Denmark, which is probably the least corrupt country in the world. And those two, those two offices, regional offices, are talking to each other, and there's potentially a money laundering conversation going on. How do you measure whether you got that accurate or not? That's a really interesting challenge and probably another opportunity for a startup to come up with some kind of measurement mechanism, which is going to have to be AI-based, to work out, actually, is that a false positive? Or have you stumbled on some kind of signal in the noise that is actually leading you to an actual problem that's happening in the organization? So getting a bit philosophical here. Sorry, Sam, I didn't answer your question at all. But that's a really, really good question. No, I, I think you did. You, you really got really, really hit the mark there, I think. But I guess to, to, to extend on that question, um, I guess does increasing the size of your data set necessarily equate to improving the model you know do you think at some point the, the you mentioned picking up new features do you think it gets to a point where those features can interact with each other you might hit some theoretical limit of features and your model becomes too complex to actually classify anything do you think it, 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 it starts to kind of damage itself at a point and from my perspective i would say you can never have enough data um i think the more data you feed it the more granularity you can get um, and the more use cases you can build, whether it's uh, analytical use cases, whether it's trends, whether it's data loss prevention, whether it's archival, duplication, redundant, obsolete and trivial data, access rights. I mean, for AI and ML, uh, the fuel that powers it is data. And, and we see some huge, huge, huge companies uh, approaching us who have hundreds of terabits of data um and i still believe that um if that unless that data is rot okay meaning that does it's redundant obsolete and trivial and there's no value in it if there is value in the data then the more the merrier from my perspective i think mm -hmm. i think you can always get value out of that if it's not rot mm -hmm. obviously ml and ai is important to identify the rot and uh, and and eliminate that rot and and that's really a big challenge because if you look at how um amazon aws amazon or azure generate money it's storage and um rot takes up huge amounts of um storage space and processing space and not only rot but also duplication so a core function of what we do is we help them to deal with that rot problem and that duplication problem but when you get rid of all of the noise and all of that that rubbish the, the actual core data itself, um, there's value in that. Yeah. So the more, the, the merrier. Mm. Um, but also remember, though, that too much uh, too much data in a certain area can introduce bias into your model. If you've got bias in your model that's part of the underlying data set, 
then that's going to be really difficult to detect, especially if that forms the ground truth. A ground truth with bias in is extremely difficult to detect. So um, we look out for getting decent cross-sections of data across all of the organization if we can. If somebody brings us, and this happened a few weeks ago, 200,000 files of a particular type, and they said, we found 200,000 files of this particular type, which is great, and we went, oh, oh my goodness, this, they're all the same type of document. That's It's great, but it's actually not that great. You need a nice representation of the whole data set. But you've made me think of a really interesting thing that I saw, I, I read about a month ago, and that is researchers somewhere in the US, and I don't know where it is, have shown that a neural network that is shown, this is a vision-based test that was done. They've shown that an example of what looks like snow on a television set can be interpreted as actual images by a neural network. So it's it literally just looks like a, a grid of noise, and that's been classified as a bus or as an as an ostrich or as a fish, and that's because the neural network is looking for specific signals, and if those signals are there, it reports a specific answer. The fact that that's not a bus, it's just a, a, a picture of snow. The neural network has got no idea about that. Mm. So the person summed up the article very well to say that. The neural networks are not learning what we think they're learning. They're learning specific signals in the in the potentially in the noise. So we need a new set of research to be done that introduces some level of what I don't know how else to call it, but common sense in understanding that that's not a picture of a dolphin. That's just a whole bunch of noise that that triggers the signals for a dolphin. So Maybe there's somebody on this on this call or on this webinar that can help us solve this. As human beings, we need a solution to this. Is how can we solve that problem of plain old common sense? That's not a dolphin. That's just noise. So it's really interesting, and it's something that we avoid by trying to get a good representation of business documents. So it's a narrow field of AI that we're working in, and we're getting good results. But if you think about the overall bigger picture, we have to get some of this common sense into the into the equation yeah i think uh, i think that's the leap to strong ai as which is the term used yeah. now i guess we haven't really reached strong ai completely uh, yet uh, and we were already thinking about super ai which exceeds human intelligence so um the way I found out about Get Visibility was through the Ireland AI Awards. Uh, so you guys were finalists in 2018, uh, I believe. And uh, was there a certain uh, feature or technology that you guys entered with, or was it just the company as a whole? Um, we entered with our um, Get Visibility Focus platform, which is the, um, the ML which we applied, which we've spoken about on this uh, session. Uh, which is our pre-built, pre-trained, out-of-the-box model, which you can apply to your um, legacy data repositories. Um, and I think that's that, That's primarily what we applied That was the with. first one, yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. So it was the first one. Yeah. Uh, it was the machine learning algorithm that we've been describing for documents. Okay, so uh, a question here from James. He has said uh, that insider threats are often extremely difficult for organizing organizations to detect. And he said, can you elaborate a bit about the, how the solution detects and also notifies the organization of this very sensitive type of issue, which can potentially occur at the highest levels of management? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a brilliant question. And um, uh, funnily enough, um, the, the problem which James has just described is one of the reasons we built Get Visibility. Um, we have a client who is a very large uh, global um, uh, organization and they manufacture uh, recipes for some of the world's leading brands. And um, they've made huge investments in best of breed um, security technologies to protect their hundreds of sites around the globe. And one of the challenges they presented to us was um, as part of our security concern, 
we have very valuable intellectual property which sits in an unstructured format in lots of different um, R&D facilities around the globe. And unfortunately, in our business, one of the biggest risks we have is our own staff. And the reason being is that because we manufacture ingredients, an organization like Starbucks or Coca-Cola or PepsiCo or McDonald's may come to us tomorrow and say, can you architect a new flavor for uh, Pepsi with citrus, let's say, for, for, for um, argument's sake. And you've got a guy working in a lab who is working eight or 12 hours a day manufacturing the flavors to build this recipe. And in many instances, and this is a big problem in pharmaceutical as well, um, they feel they have a degree of ownership over the IP that they are building. But in fact, it's it's not even their employer. They are just subcontractors for some of the world's biggest companies. Again, whether it's Coca-Cola or PepsiCo or whoever else it might be, right? And trying to secure that data is a huge, huge problem. You see it in pharmaceutical all the time, where you've guys in R&D and they're building the new hot, drug or cure or vaccine and suddenly the other pharmaceutical companies come and they try and poach the staff because they will get a leg up in terms of their development process to build that new drug. So how do you stop your own staff from whether it's at the top levels of management or it's at your R&D level from exfiltrating that type of data out of the organization and in many cases that data is very complex, it's very sensitive, it's very valuable, um, and it's very difficult to protect. And that was one of the reasons we built Get Visibility. Um, we looked at the problem, we evaluated the market, we looked at what technologies were available, and we identified that there was a huge gaping hole in the global security industry to deal with this problem. And we identified that if you could build a machine learning model and you could train it, for example, on the type of data that's required to build the COVID, COVID vaccine, um, you could give it, feed it subsets of that data. And then as a business, you could say, we're concerned about the IP that we are architecting for the COVID vaccine leaking from Pfizer. And where that would leak is across our 200 R&D facilities in Ringeskiddy or in, in Bangalore or in Sydney. And we want to overlay, get visibility on all of the endpoints and all of the file shares in those organizations to identify where that data is. And should a user try and put it on a USB key or email it to their Gmail or their Hotmail or move it to a cloud storage uh, location, we have the ability to block it based on what the machine learning says. And what you can then do is you can take complex uh, pieces of data which represent um, what is important to that organization, whether it's a food ingredients business or it's a pharmaceutical company or it's a financial organization, and you can train the model to identify those pieces of data and then implement the InfoSec policies which overlay it. So integrating Forcepoint, Trend Micro, uh, Symantec, McAfee, um, all of these different technologies. But by us providing that very granular visibility, both at the user level, uh, which is the insider threat, James, um, you can effectively deal with that really, really complex problem. In fact, we were on a call this morning with a large organization in London, a financial organization, who have huge concerns about their staff working remotely and accessing very, very delicate data, which sits in Excel, financial Excel spreadsheets, uh, which they're exporting out of their ERP system so that their users can work on that data. Uh, the term actually is called uh, EUCs, end user computing. Um, it's where you're building in formula to Excel to, uh, to, 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 to get computational output. Um, and in that instance, what we're doing is we're training the model on what EUCs are and where the risk of those EUCs is within that organization. 
Um, and the whole reason for this, and a huge, huge part of the get visibility value proposition is dealing with that insider threat. So that's a brilliant question, and it's, and it's, it's a huge part of the problem. I've got a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. If, if I might just jump in. So excellent question. So, James, if I might pose a quick scenario. Imagine that you are the chief security officer of this organization that Ronan has mentioned. You're in an arms race and you're on a tightrope, if I may mix my metaphors. So the arms race is that your staff that Ronan mentioned are trying to sneak that information out. And they're going to try and find a loophole or some way to get that information out, whether they can email it to their Gmail account, which you can block with a, 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 a DLP platform, or whether they can stick it onto the USB, uh, onto a USB stick or thumb drive, which you can block as well. Maybe they're going to encrypt it or rename the file and try and print it out and take it out with them, which you can block with security. So it's really difficult to try and block all of these different ways that they can get the data out without paralyzing the company. Like to say, okay, you've opened that document. We want to know exactly why you've opened it. That's impossible. So the only way you could do it is if you had a really clever person sitting watching these research scientists and saying, Hang on a minute, what are you up to there? Now, of course, that's not feasible to have these bouncers shedding your IT people. But if you had a piece of software that could learn what a good pattern is and a bad pattern of behavior, you might actually be able to automate that. And get visibility is one of the first steps towards that type of an approach. But we need something that looks at behavioral patterns. And there are some companies doing amazing stuff. We don't go quite that far down the track with get visibility because we're looking at the documents. But documents, behavior, emails, uh, USB activity, all of those things can correlate to weird behavior, which you want to catch. And that's really where it gets interesting. And AI is the only way to solve that. So that's what I wanted to say. So great question, James. And very good. As you can see, uh, we could talk about the insider threat problem for hours, uh, but fundamentally, it was the um, the insider threat problem that created the vision for building get visibility. Excuse the pun. Uh, thanks, guys, for that uh, detailed answer. Um, a question that I had and Adam also asked was, uh, what skills would you recommend students who are interested in cybersecurity and AI to develop to get into this sector and to work in companies like Get Visibility. So um, I, I'll kick off first, right? And I, um, I think I think the the big problem with cybersecurity is we get people coming in here all of the time looking for a job in cybersecurity, but cybersecurity is enormous in terms of a word. Um, if you want to work in cybersecurity, do you want to work in sales? Do you want to work in marketing? Do you want to work in um, software development? Do you want to work in penetration testing? Do you want to be an engineer? Do you want to be um, a product owner? Do you want to be an architect? Do you want to work as a level one, two or three SOC analyst? Um, it's, it's, it's endless. And every one of those areas is deep and technical and high stakes poker. So we sometimes get people who will come in and they'll rock in. They'll say, well, I, I want to be a, a pen tester, uh, but I also might want to be an engineer. And you, you have to kind of say, look, they're very, very different. To be a pen tester, your software game has to be very strong. You have to have a specific type of mindset. Um, you have to have done a lot of work uh, in your own time about breaking things and fixing things and understanding how to hack into networks. If you want to be an engineer, then you have, to have had to set up your home network and you know got the fundamentals of configuring firewalls and so forth. If you want to work in AI and ML, which Derek will talk about in, in a moment, you have to have a specific mindset. So the, the, the big issue I see is, 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 is with students saying, I want to work in cybersecurity. Um, you need to distill it down um, to a far more granular level. And, and, and if you're you know, applying to work in, in organizations like this, I want to work in this area of the industry because I'm passionate about either engineering or AI or ML or SOC or whatever it might be. Um, and, and I think that's really important because cybersecurity is just far too broad. Mm -hmm. You could have five lifetimes um, and not master all of the different areas of, of cybersecurity. Derek? Mm. 
There's a really good side of this, though, and that is there's a huge demand for cybersecurity uh, people all over the world, and it's growing. And as a result, if you can get in as, for example, an area, one of the areas that Ronan mentioned, say software development, if you're a software engineer and you've got some experience with uh, the uh, 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 one of the degrees maybe that they're doing in software engineering, um, um, then get developing and get into a company that you can focus on that specific job, but you will soak up information and knowledge about the industry. And you'll understand, like, there's there's people called SOC analysts, like um, Security Operations Center, which we're sitting in. SOC analysts, there's pen testers, which Ronan mentioned. Those are advanced, highly skilled roles that you get to after you've done a few years of soaking up the whole cybersecurity uh, in industry itself. But it's easier to get in at one of the lower levels as a developer or product owner or um, one of the other roles that Ronan mentioned. Get some experience and understand. And, but the good thing is you can do that and you can look around and see which area interests me. Where do I want to develop myself into? Speak to the people that you're working with to say, how do I get from being a mid-level software engineer to becoming a penetration tester? What are the skills that I need to do? Who do I need to start shadowing? Um, what aptitudes do I need to display? And um, the people can actually help you develop because they have an interest in developing you to the best of your abilities in that particular area. So get your foot in the door by looking at uh, maybe a slightly less advanced role, like a software developer or product owner or one of those, because you can pick up good skills from those before you start in the cybersecurity. In any industry, those are transferable into cybersecurity. And once you're in, soak it up and look around and see which areas really interest you. And I think, I think Adam, uh, to your point, right, we must have interviewed 500 people in the last few months, and we keep our interviews down to um, 10 minutes. And if you get past the 10-minute interview for whatever position we're looking for, you then get to the next phase. But... The questioning in those 10 minutes will really, really quickly allow us to determine if that uh, applicant is passionate about the sector. And they will be, um, you know, give us two minutes on what cybersecurity means to you. What, what's your understanding of it? Um, tell us about the four interesting things that happened in the last 30 days in the industry. Um, Tell us about what specific area in the sector you feel that your personality is um, uh, strong for. For example, working in a SOC, you need a very specific type of personality. To work as a pen tester, you need a different personality. To be a developer, you need to be a little bit different again. And it, if you want to work in the sector, you need to be buried and immersed in all of the news that's coming out, the innovation that's coming out. Um, have opinions and perspectives on where you feel the sector is going. Um, and it's very easy to tell when you converse with somebody who wants to work in cyber, which is, I mean, it's a, tr a tremendous career path to follow because there's 100% employment. Um, so it's a really exciting, dynamic, fast-moving, yet stressful uh, sector. So I, I'd highly recommend it. But I would say before you uh, jump into going for interviews or meeting companies, spend hours and hours and hours researching what's happening, what's hot, what's not, what the news is, because there's so much of it there. Um, employers like us can very, very quickly, within 30 seconds, well, within three minutes, know if you're passionate about the sector or not. Um, I, was, I was shocked at how bad a lot of the applicants are who apply for jobs in both smart tech and in get visibility, and they haven't done that groundwork, mm. you know? Yeah, but it pays off. It pays that, off. In fact, this this works in any industry you want to get into. If you do homework and you can absorb some of that information about what's going on, it pays off. You stand out from the other people that are applying for the job, that are applying for that, and they haven't thrown themselves into that. They haven't soaked up that information and tried to learn as much as they can. And um, and once you're standing out, then you're through to the next round. Yeah, I'm, so it's possible. I'm continually, I'm continually flabbergasted at people that go for interviews um, and they haven't immersed themselves in the sector for um, a period of time. 
so that they can show off in the interview and have that opportunity to shine. Um, so, you know, that, that's my advice. Something that I'd always recommend is if you can take along one suggestion for the company to say, Correct. hey, have you guys thought about maybe doing this or how about that opportunity? Does that is that an opportunity for you? Or like even if the company has looked at it and they've thrown it away, or they, it's it's old news to the the insiders in the industry. The fact that you're bringing ideas just puts you right up there at the top of the list. So something to keep in mind. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, I think Sam, do you have any other questions there? That's uh, that's all my questions. Oh, I think that's that's brilliant, guys. Thank you so so much yeah, for, for coming the opportunity. We covered. I just want to say a massive thank you to yourself, Ronan and Derek. Um, really, really interesting talk and really, really Excellent. cool stuff Great. you're doing, guys. It's been it's been a pleasure, and thank you for allowing us to participate this evening. And um, I hope the, I hope uh, work, uh, studying from home and working from home and so forth isn't too taxing. And hopefully, we'll be out the the other side of this by the end of the year. Bye. Absolutely.